Raymond Bacon here with Our Sacred Seeds. I have a wonderful opportunity to share in a dialogue with a good friend of mine, Ryan Hill. Ryan Hill is an environmental nutritionist who focuses on permaculture principles and how they relate to food and food systems. One of his main passions right now is looking at the relationship between nutrient density and food and how that affects individual and plant health as well. So Ryan, can you give a short blurb on what brings you here and what your interests are with permaculture? Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Ray. Um, You know, sort of my interest with this all stems from, uh, you know, a a deep kinship with nature. Very fortunate to grow up here on the West Coast in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, really got uh, a good exposure to the wilderness and the wild and animals. And obviously I have a deep love for food as well. It's delicious. Who doesn't like a good meal? And, uh, you know, as I uh, carried on through my life, I... uh, learned quite quickly that I was living a a self-serving lifestyle and started to sort of seek outwardly. Uh, During that process, I got a a fairly substantial injury and was told I was going to have chronic back pain for the rest of my life from pretty much every conventional uh, perspective uh, on health. Uh, Once I took a look from sort of the holistic perspective, I found that there, there were ways to pursue healing your body. Um, which I was capable of doing um, through, um, you know, with a moderate amount of exercise and uh, a really big diet change. That sort of led to my introduction into permaculture. And with that, uh, you know, once that door opened, there was no turning back. It was just one of those things where I saw the light and had to follow. Um, Oh, wonderful. Well, it's, it is amazing to hear personal stories about uh, transformation and how that opens up whole new areas of possibility within one's life. And I'm excited to have this chance to speak with you further about permaculture and other factors that uh, are impacting one's health. And uh, I would really like to know, and I'm sure the audience as well, in a short blurb, what would you say permaculture is and what does it offer? Well, it depends. I, I mean, permaculture right now, uh, from my perspective, is divided into uh, two main components. One, which is the environmental and environmental component, which is uh, our food systems, how we interact with the environment, um, you know, climate change as a whole. And the other is the communal side of it. Uh, you know, we as a, a large uh, population on this planet now have moved further and further away from the uh, the small community style living which uh, the indigenous peoples of this planet were used to living for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Uh, so uh, the combination of those two really is um, what permaculture is as a whole. Now you can go specific into each of them and for myself what I get to take away from permaculture is that nature does it better than than any any person can and really what we're allowing nature to do is take due course maybe we jump started or take uh, uh, some small steps to aid nature in getting into to full gear uh, but as far as supplying ourselves with food as our food systems are being degraded on an exponential level uh, yearly it seems like uh, we have the ability to allow nature to take due course and uh, interact with it in a way that allows us to not only uh, benefit nature as a whole, uh, but ourselves as well, where we can mm-hmm. get the food that is nutrient dense, that is beneficial for us to eat, that is more delicious, 
and we can do this all in a way that ends up being positive at the end of the day. Wow. So essentially taking the best aspects of nature and working with it and not against it to create something that is uh, beneficial and equally so to humanity and other species herein. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're going to go forward here on this talk and go deep into the relationship that we are having now with forest ecology and how that is affecting entire ecosystems, basically our timber extraction and how that is impacting ecosystems and may have a long-term impact on human health as well with climactic changes and nutrient runoff and other um, toxins that may be entering in our waterways and airways through this process. For the listeners, I, I have a background as a tree planter and I worked in the silviculture industry for a few years and had, in my time, I've planted over 200,000 trees and it's something that like I really enjoyed it and I got into it for um, perhaps naive re- reasons and began to uh, discover really the implications that this industry does have on the health of uh, various ecosystems. And through my experience, I really watched a lot of degradation of landscapes occur. At least I got to see entire hectares of land as far as I could see of basically clear-cut what was once forest left to uh, be open to the sun and rain and uh, all the weathering factors. What do you think, Ryan, is one of the uh, greatest short sites when it comes to the way in which in British Columbia and throughout Canada, the way in which we're harvesting timber and managing forests? That's a great question, Ray. Um, Firstly, I'd just like to say, you know, it's not very often that we get someone like Ray, who is a holistic nutritionist, to have the experience of being a tree planter and be able to sort of uh, have the viewpoint that he does. Uh, You know, it's just a real pleasure to be able to be friends with a a gentleman like this and, uh, you know, to have these conversations because it is something that is uh, quite a regular occurrence with us. Uh, So this topic's come up uh, between us, obviously, quite regularly and with a number of other people. Uh, We talk about the... uh, Sorry, I'm going to get off topic just for like one second, but it's going to cut right back into it, I promise. Sure. So uh, we talk about uh, the climate shift or global global warming, whatever you want to call it, um, as this big looming problem. But really what, uh, you know, what, what we see within the permaculture world uh, as the, the really big issues are three things. They are water toxification, deforestation, and soil loss. So those are the three sort of, I would say, main components of what are affecting this global climate shift that we're going through. So now, um, specifically with uh, deforestation uh, here in uh, the boreal forest region, I think the, the main problem that we run into is, is clear-cutting as a whole is just absolutely the worst approach. I mean, selective logging is a, is a far better approach as a whole uh, for bank stabilization. That's one of the big problems we run into within uh, that that realm is uh, this bank stabilization causes a, a huge problem for the continual growth of uh, the seedlings that get planted, um, or sorry, the treelings that get planted. Right, and is that is that because of the uh, soil being left bare and the lack of uh, organic matter in the soil and other organisms that keeps the uh, soil structure intact so that um, other textural deposits like silt and sand can start to uh, wash away with rainfall and weathering is that Uh, absolutely yeah that's um, 
you know, one of the big major components of it. Uh, soil loss is um, undoubtedly now, I would say, the biggest threat against humanity. I think globally we've lost about 40% of our topsoil all into the oceans through uh, agricultural and uh, deforestation practices. Uh, so I think that uh, the really big steps forward that we can take with uh, specifics to uh, logging within the mountainous regions anyways is if we are going to be uh, cutting down trees, which I'm, it's, it's up in the air whether this is acceptable <laughs> or not, obviously. Um, we won't get into that, that debate today. Uh, but um, if we are going to be doing this, and it looks for the, like the, for the foreseeable future that we are, uh, let's at least be taking the bark off the trees and leaving it in, in the forest. And, you know, nutrient loss is such a big impact on uh well you know one thing that i i had seen and and certainly one of the factors that 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 uh, i really start to think more and more about is is yeah the the ability that one side side known is ability of trees to sequester carbon from the atmosphere and their ability to retain that in their biomass and in the soil structure itself to which they grow in and how that can impact the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, help to reduce it. So having healthy, viable forests is a huge, huge solution to some of the climactic changes that we're we're starting to see. And with that side note, what's what's been happening, obviously, for centuries, is uh, multiple extractions or entire you know deforestation of entire regions where trees are being removed. And the biomass itself is removed from the site, and there, with the exception of some chemical fertilizer input, inputs, there's really nothing else being put back into the soil. So the removal of uh, the minerals that are present in the uh, the biomass, as well as the high amount of carbon, um, do you think that's having an effect on the uh, health of the future forests that are emerging? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, trees don't grow out of thin air. Now, obviously, trees are largely carbon, but uh, there are other minerals and nutrients that are within a tree. Um, and when we take a tree out, you know, they grow from a tiny little seed into these massive structures. They're huge. I mean, in some cases, they're thousands of feet tall, or I guess not thousands, but a thousand plus feet tall uh, for the largest ones. But what we're doing is, or what we're overlooking is the fact that when we take those trees out, we're taking the nutrient cycling sources out of those forests. So when a tree naturally falls in nature, it breaks down, it biodegrades into the forest and helps to re-release uh, nutrient where other trees will grow from and thrive out of those situations. With current logging practices, we take, we cut the trees down, we take them out and we don't do anything to help that landscape other than to replant those trees. Now granted, the root systems of those trees are equally as large in mass as the above ground portion. But as they dwindle and die, they only have so much that they can offer for the continual well, and, regrowth of the forest, right? And, and the biggest concern I see with that is you have an entire area that's clear cut. And come summertime with higher heat and temperature extremes, you get that heat starts to speed up the decomposition of the root structure that would have been present. And instead of that carbon and nitrogen and other materials um, staying put in the soil. In the case of carbon and nitrogen, you've got the decomposition happening very quickly, and it's not staying in the soil. It's entering into the atmosphere directly and is 
contributing to climate change, CO2 and then nitric oxide, but the lack of integrity in the overall ecosystem, meaning that there isn't enough decomposers left because of the ground is left barren. So mm-hmm. this amount of high heat will start to kill all the mycorrhizal fungal networks that is present in the soil and also other decomposers that fungi decomposers that are necessary for slow decomposition of the uh, of the biomass absolutely and, and retaining it in the soil so yeah that, that's a, it's a really big problem uh you know as we're seeing this soil loss happen you know we we've got to really take a, a big step back and look look at you know if we are really going to pro- progress as a species or a society or some kind of permanent permanent installation on this planet which i think that you know all people want to be a part of we need to look at the process of nature and how that's that's happening, what's going on there. So in nature, in a forest, it takes about 100 years to produce about an inch of topsoil, so 2.5 centimeters. Well, one catastrophic rain event on a clearly cut the forest area can wash away tons and tons of topsoil. You know, four, four tons an acre uh, on, the, on a moderate slope is pretty easily done. Uh, you know, at the more extreme the event goes... Obviously, it's going to be right. So, weather weathering erosion is is a huge factor, and I also definitely see a lot of soil compaction in what people think are forests, but are clear cuts, and the amount of heavy machinery and the the loads of logs that is is piled on machines is there is a lot of soil compaction, and as a result, that uh, soil is very difficult to as a planter to get the shovel into, but let alone for the seedling to mature well past 80 years and we're seeing um, within the British Columbia we're seeing roughly 40 percent of our forests are dead or dying and are infected with uh, the pine beetle infestation. What is being mentioned as the major culprit is climate change and essentially a one degree Celsius change that has occurred is is the reason, at least in uh, conventional sources, for the beetle's tenacity and inability to uh, to die back. If one degree Celsius is enough to cause this kind of pest to wreak such havoc on such large areas of mass landscapes, what do you think is might the future hold if we continue under these practices and we start to see a three degree Celsius up to six degree Celsius increase in the next uh, turn of the century yeah you know it's a it's a great question and obviously one that i think you know everybody should be focused on with the the shift uh from a climate climatological um perspective we really don't know i mean personally i think that what we're going to see is the more extremes uh you know if if you look at uh, vancouver here for example we just had the driest july ever there was not a single drop of rain not one and what happens in those times, obviously fire bans go up, but there are, uh, we go through these environmental extremes where we get large thunderstorms coming through, especially through the Okanagan regions, and we see forest fires coming through. And when you get a forest that's burning, that hasn't had rain for a month straight, I mean, you're not, you're not stopping it. You, you're, it's just, let's see what happens. Right. Yeah. So so the, definitely we're going to see a lot more forest fires and the need to I guess, create uh, what kind of barrier structures would be useful in uh, inhibiting the spread of forest fires in these landscapes? Like what, what do you think, or is that even necessary? Well, I think it's absolutely necessary. With our interactions now with uh, logging and, uh, and so forth, 
if we are going to interact with the landscape, um, you know, there are there are there are very very uh, sound options to proceed with, and we can be planting large um, fire barriers uh, of organic material, plants that are natural fire deters, things that don't burn. There are species from all over the world that. Some of them, uh, like the iron bark tree from Australia specifically, will will grow here quite fine. Um, so, do you, do, with the permaculture principles intact and your your bias in that area, do you feel that uh, human intervention in this this scale of uh, working to create new ecosystems within regions that have never seen a lot of species? Do you think that is actually something we'll have to do to uh, to maintain a lot of biodiversity in the future? It's that or we shut down everything right now. I, I mean, we really are at a, a point now where we talk a lot about preserving specific species um, and, and preventing invasive species from coming in. But we don't talk a lot about non-invasive species that we can use for utilization techniques. Now, you know, with... Sorry, you and, look and, like... And, you're... To, and to bear in mind that, that a lot of invasive species perform an inc- incredible function there's a lot oh, of invasive absolutely. species that are incredible at uh, decompacting soil that have have has been disturbed with human influence and you know blackberry and yeah i'd actually like example of that. I, i'd really like for you to sort of give your little uh, blackberry uh uh garden uh Right, this reclaim <laughs> uh, reclamation experience just to, just for the listeners to really get a, a feel for what's going on with the soil underneath a blackberry. Now, the blackberry that we see here on the west coast, specifically uh, the ones that are very large and very abrasive looking with the, the thorns and everything, are not a native species, but they do serve a fantastic function. Um, and now you had yeah. an experience where you you took out um, some blackberry to to build a garden, was it? Yeah, yeah. So. Blackberry is something that uh, many many gardeners would avoid, like the plague, and would would never even <laughs> even attempt to uh, remove a blackberry uh, bush that that's quite large um, for many reasons. I I I had uh, started working with a nonprofit organization. It was a artist guild society, and there was a piece, a parcel of land that was available to this organization that could be converted into uh, a demonstration garden to help inspire people to start growing food from home. And this is something that, among others, we took on, and I, I really helped to uh, to spearhead some of that. And uh, what the hands-on work that was done, essentially, we were left with an area that was that was completely overgrown with blackberry. And the, the piece of land, there were areas that didn't have a lot of blackberry, but they didn't have any sun exposure. So the area that had the most sun exposure had the most blackberry, ironically enough. uh, (laughs) Always um, seems to happen that way. But uh, this whole area, I mean, it was, uh, we took out an area the size of probably, uh, oh, I don't know, 500 square feet, probably, of blackberry. Uh, Quite large. No easy uh, task. No, no, not an easy task. So... Those of you who may not be familiar with blackberry, when you cut back a uh, blackberry bush, if you let any of the brambles come down into the dirt and even get slightly buried at any point of its length, that has the potential to uh, clone or transplant and then start to grow a new bush. Like it's very, it's like a hydra, you know, you cut off one head, and, you know, two heads emerge. Yeah. But what what I discovered in that process was remarkable because. You know, once once we cut back the blackberry itself, and I, I started to uh, pickaxe and go into the root structure of the blackberry, 
I was finding roots that were as thick as my wrist, literally of uh, blackberry, wow. and went went it went down right through down into the uh, subsoil, and I was able to remove most of the uh, the blackberry, and I I, I sifted out the uh, root structure so that we could burn all the uh, remaining blackberry, and uh, then moved the topsoil to one side. And then laid down really thick cardboard, about a, an inch thick, to uh, help prevent any of the remaining roots that were in the subsoil from, from penetrating. And then put the cleaned topsoil back on without any of the roots in hopes that it wouldn't be contaminated. And uh, what I found, besides finding uh, liquor bottles that were 80 years old, <laughs> that uh, I actually hit, hit my pickaxe on a uh, what was a bottle of... Uh, uh, must have been... Uh, white rum because i could smell it evaporating when i when i hit it and the, the bottle itself would have been yeah 80 years old there were there were horseshoes from you know horse horse and buggy um day and uh basically this area was all compacted in the last 50 years with uh, a lot of uh trucks and a lot of uh you know uh transport vehicles for uh, there's a liquor store nearby and uh Due to the de- the compaction, the blackberry thrived to actually decompact the area. And the area in which the blackberry was growing had topsoil that was at least a foot and a half to two feet deep of rich black topsoil. And the area that didn't have the blackberry was completely compacted hard pan without even grass growing on top. So it performed an incredible function. And uh, we converted that and we were successful with... with uh, a garden plant and uh you know there some blackberry has come back but it's been very manageable and um really the purpose of blackberry is is like a hands-off it keeps species out and it keeps humans away and it lets you know it performs its function it lets nature essentially run its course of uh decompacting the soil and once the soil is decompacted and larger trees can start to grow and shade off the blackberry the blackberry dies and then you know it's not there anymore. And but this is within you know uh, hundreds of years cycles, mm-hmm. which is something that we're not really familiar to work with. So the, the, you, you mentioned something that was really interesting to me, or a point that I'd like to, to bring across is that once uh, or you know the blackberry itself is something that's keeping us out of there. And you know this is nature's way of sort of communicating with us, like things need to be repaired like let's we we need to get back on track with this and i think that's apparent i I don't think anyone's ever going to disagree with that not not in today's age um but what uh, what's really interesting is when we see um what is what a plant like this is doing and the speed in which it's repairing the topsoil uh it's really quite brilliant because this is nature taking due course to repair a broken system a function because nature wants to be uh, you know, a forest or a meadow or an estuary. That's where it wants to be. We're always like a city is always fighting nature. You're always having to pressure wash. You're always having to pick the weeds out from between the cracks, whatever it is. But uh, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, every plant that you see that is a weed, so to speak, isn't necessarily a weed. It's pioneering a broken system. There is an issue with the space. So one of the things that we see in a forest after a fire is we see ferns, these bracken ferns. They come back. They're, they're fixing phosphorus into the ground. They or Fireweed is a great example. Fireweed, exactly. Yeah. So they're, they're performing a function. So, uh, you know, the other thing that, that happens with soil loss, which is, is an absolute shame as well, is uh, seed loss. And, uh, you know, in any given section of uh, topsoil, 
you'll find per square foot roughly about 2,000 seeds. And those will activate upon different situations that will arise within the natural process. Right. So, so the seeds will only germinate given the right environment. Exactly. Environmental conditions. So it's, you know, it's reparative storing, essentially. The, the nature is putting those seeds there and letting them sit dormant so that we can or that they can when the time is uh, necessary go through the reparative function. So after a fire, after a flood, whatever it is that um, our interaction is, you know, we lay down concrete or we compact a space, we see, you know, look at the conventional lawn, lawns that are heavily uh, laden with dandelions. Right. Uh, dandelions have a large taproot. They're trying to decompact. That's their job. You know, right. And you think of a lot of, a lot of urban areas, uh, a lot of the topsoil is, is contaminated or has been removed in the building practices or had been completely compacted with a lot of the uh, resources that built the house, whether that was timber and whether that was, uh, you know, rocks and uh, machinery just sitting for uh, months at a time in one given area is compacting the earth significantly. And Mm -hmm. um, then people buy, you know, a few inches of topsoil that might be contaminated with a variety of weeds and you know, or may actually be contaminated with heavy metals that is sourced from, you know, questionable areas and then start to grow their lawn in hopes that it thrives. But, uh, yeah, it really is quite, quite strange how the madness that, that is, is going on right now and working against nature instead of working with it. And a great example that I really want to touch on is, uh, when I was out in, uh, Lynn Valley area, it was Lynn Valley Canyon in in north vancouver oh beautiful area. and uh absolutely gorgeous and you had an area that was the parking lot that had a gravel um placed down and on the perimeter of the area there was a slight embankment going from a path into the forest and within that embankment there's a high amount of uh, knotweed and in, an invasive considered an invasive species and um, when I went there, I saw a sign that, that uh, basically said herbicide has been sprayed to, to uh, help to eradicate this invasive species that is uh, growing here and is, uh, you know, problematic. Yet what the sign really, really didn't explain is that the knotweed was doing a great job at uh, protecting the embankment from erosion. A lot of the water that would pool on the the tarmac of the uh, parking lot would then pull down this uh, path and is obviously eroding the embankment because it's a a man-made structure. And it was performing a great function and was not actually entering into the forest ecology outside of the human-influenced area. So to go there and see the herbicide put on there, which is actually (laughs) killing beneficial microbes and mycorrhizal fungi which is necessary for the regeneration of that soil so that other seeds can germinate and thrive in that environment is completely idiotic yeah (laughs) (laughs) you and i have obviously we crack out both some of the practices that go on but uh you know, also that, that will, you know, spraying herbicide and pesticide or, you know, whatever spray you're putting, if it's an agrochemical, it's going right into the water supply. There's people, uh, you know, animals, fish, uh, you know, that's, that's a huge portion of, uh, the, the fish spawning, uh, route for, um, the area, you know, the Fraser river has one of, if not the largest, uh, salmon runs in the entire world. And, you know, our interactions with that are, you know, 
we think it's just spraying one little chemical, but supporting these agrochemical companies is, is really well. You know, a sure, sure, the knotweed was killed off, but it doesn't discriminate. You know, these chemicals don't discriminate exactly. what plants they're that they're going to, uh, you know, kill off or or animals that are going to be poisoned, and uh, yeah, it's a concern even for humans because that is going to enter into our waterways, and it does it enters into uh, groundwater and uh, well water and eventually enters into our bodies and you know yeah and it's funny too like if you look at um you know a natural healthy forest system we really get sort of see the the truth behind these invasive species uh they don't enter a healthy forest ecosystem you look at blackberries if you go for a walk for 20 minutes into the woods that's not on a man uh, a man-made path from from machinery you don't see these blackberries they don't exist out there if they do, it's very specific uh, situations, but they don't they don't impede on the forest. They're on the fringe where our interactions have taken place, where systems are degraded. That's the thing. That's right. what we really need to look at is these interactions are taking place where, or sorry, these species are taking place in, in spaces where we've interacted with nature in, in a negatively impactful way. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't be building houses and, you know, growing space or uh, developing community for people to live in. What's that, what that's saying is that if we are going to do that, there are things that we can do to help aid the area around us. Being more aware of how we interact with nature is clearly the more uh, approachable way of living life, not turning our back to it and spraying an agrochemical on it because of the, you know, the factors that are beyond what we can see. That's, that's sort of my two cents on that, I guess. Yeah, it's, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think most of the audience listening is, is obviously biased towards that as well. And, uh, moving, moving into a little more into uh forests and, uh, back to our original topic. Um, it's interesting. A lot of modern foresters will say that uh, we need to clear cut. Well, not clear cut, but we need to cut down old growth trees because they're actually not performing a function anymore. They're essentially not uptaking and storing any additional carbon and is not having a beneficial impact, at least their viewpoint, on climate change due to carbon sequestering and uh, um that is something that is actually an, an argument that is put forward by a lot of foresters. And another one is uh, to do with that is uh, forest fires, is that um, naturally forests, particularly old growth forests, are prone to uh, forest fires and um, will burn to the ground and new forests will regenerate. And that is the natural cycles that happen. God, that's and absolutely that, uh, not true. <laughs> that we're, we're to, uh, we're to uh, speed up this process because these forests are... Yeah, essentially static. Um, what is your thought on that uh, argument? Okay, so let's just touch on the forest fires quickly. Uh, so in the boreal region, which is uh, the, the northern hemisphere, the largest forest region of uh, forests within the world, uh, it operates from basically... I, you know, I wouldn't know the parallels, but uh, the the forest that we it's see... Throughout through, Canada. Yeah, and, throughout and Canada, through Russia, Russia, Mongolia, northern China... Uh, that strip uh, all up into the subarctic that's all the boreal forest region the stats that i've seen uh, they're going to vary they're but they're all pretty close every 70 to 200 years they see a sort of a a catastrophic event uh, uh, on a large scale now that being said uh, old growth forests don't 
experience necessarily the same things. They have a much, much, much higher canopy. They have a deeper root system and they have much better uh, shading protection for soil, uh, which is uh, the water retention perspective. So that they're actually creating a, uh, a less fire um, prone area by having an older growth forest. Right, so they're actually less vulnerable. Yeah, they are. Uh, so it's when we see these interactions of low canopy where we had we still have a lot of light penetrating down to the forest floor where we get a lot of smaller uh, shrubbery and uh, under canopy species that grow as we go into the dry times when they ignite they ignite much faster because they are smaller plant species and they will uh, lose their water retention much faster Uh, they are uh, a lot of what is causing a lot of these fires now is that we have gone and interacted and, in cer- and certainly that we we've we've influenced these forests by cutting them down on multiple occasions and creating uh weaker soil structures and root masses and also uh, uh less diversity and maturity and that we're also then going in with uh you know cigarettes and other uh you know yeah absolutely so, uh, absolutely so one, of the, one of the big lightning lightning strikes i mean but but yeah. humans strike more often yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. I'm not up to date with the current stats on uh, uh, the the forest fire start rate, but I know we're up somewhere around fifty percent of forest fires are started by people. Uh, what I would like to point out, though, is that when we go through these practices of removing trees, we are not only compacting the soil, but we're removing organic matter. And what that is really sort of uh, opening the door to is lack of humus in the soil. Now, that humus is what is keeping our soil nice and fluffy and retaining water. You know, the, the healthier a forest, the less uh, instance that we see of forest fires. That's, you're, it, it's, I mean, it's not even and debatable. For, for our listeners, what, what, what exactly is humus? So humus is the um, or organic matter that we'll see that's decomposing in the soil uh, that isn't necessarily broken down. So you look at a banana peel it's not going to necessarily produce very much humus, but if you look at a tree as it breaks down, the carbon structure of the material that's going into the soil is a much stronger uh, fibrous material that produces and harbors essentially uh, soil biology life. So that is retaining water and producing the uh, space for the soil biology itself. And it's, yeah, it's allowing the soil biology to thrive. And I guess there's obviously a lot of uh, organisms that are feeding off of the decomposing uh, humus. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when we remove uh, these large carbon bonds like trees out of the, uh, the forest, we are, we're we're essentially, we're removing uh, the humus or the potential for humus. And that's really a a big problem for, um, I mean, We'd go on forever with all the problems but, they what, could really get into. That's uh, well. Let's let's go into some some proactivity. We've we've outlined that uh, obviously soil compaction is a huge issue. Soil loss is a huge issue within uh, forests that have been cut down and source uh, loss of biodiversity. Higher rates of forest fires due to human involvement and um, definitely a loss of uh, the beneficial bacteria bacteria and mycorrhizal species that are necessary for plants to uptake nutrients and you know a whole host of other factors um what then are some proactive things that uh, besides selective logging you know because that's still just slowing down the uh, rate of uh, of removal what can we do to actually restore these biosystems a lot more efficiently that's a fantastic question you know um 
allowing nature to uh, sort of have a buffer between us. Uh, you know, I was I was a big proponent of um, cities being cities and that they're you know they're awful places but realistically um you know the more people we have out of the forested areas with the way we interact uh is a much much more beneficial system so with that we sort of run into um complications all over the place but what we can really do to uh, uh make sure that our forests stay intact and, and provide them is, is government protection i think that's the biggest one the governing bo- the governing body that is in charge of allowing a forest to or to not be cut down is the single uh, greatest thing that right. we can do. I mean, if if you're not allowed to cut down a forest, it stays a forest. Right, and and I think this is huge. A lot of the listeners um, agree with this. Agree with this, but there's certainly a, a large percentage of the population that that says, "Well, we need to cut down forests. We need the jobs, and uh, the economy is reeling, and you know, people need to work and need food on the table, and all that, uh, you know, rigor and more." Yeah. But um, I think the big thing is that people need to start to understand that nature doesn't just have intrinsic value anymore we need to be putting actual value on forest space these forests that we have are buffers from a wide range of environmental activities that go on naturally Um, you know wind for example in a forest stops dead stops after one kilometer if, if there's a wind coming off the ocean, it stops. It's a wind buffer. This right. is, this is right. an example. 50% of the rainfall that you get after 100 meters of forest is actually created by the forest itself. So we talk about these dry times that we're having. We're going through these more environmental extremes. These forests are essentially what are, what are or are not creating precipitation after a period of time. So having less of them obviously is uh, an interaction that's providing a contribution to that, anyways. Right, and and certainly um, the, there's also climate change is a huge huge issue as well, and maintaining uh, forests to slow down the uh, rate of climactic changes and the implications of that we could talk implications on, and I think we will. But another thing that's that's uh, equally important with uh, healthy functioning forests is having enough species uh, <laughs> yes. habitat because oh. of the uh, rates of extinction. And one thing that, that uh, shocked me and alarmed me is uh, the United Nations put out a, uh, a statistic. Uh, it was through the International Panel of Climate Change Scientists that stated by the turn of the century, if we continue down the same projected growth paths and consumption rates and uh, resource uses and all these these things that we're doing and you know if climate change continues in the direction it is with the amount of greenhouse gases emissions etc roughly 50 to 70 percent of all species terrestrial species and aquatic species on this planet will go extinct so that alone is enough i think to uh convince People who are saying, well, we need jobs. Well, we also need a, uh, you know, this planet to survive. And um, for a, a merely selfish reason, but also, you know, the, every species has their intrinsic value and they have a, a function and a purpose that in many cases goes beyond our comprehension. So it's completely arrogant and uh, uh, cruel to even suggest that uh, that they wouldn't. Um, we, 
Yeah, we live in a diverse and dynamic world. And I mean, I think that the best estimations that we have um, is that we've only discovered 30% of the species that live on this planet. And for us to sort of interact in a way that is negatively impacting any species, uh, you know, without some forethought of what we can or cannot do to help recover our interactions afterwards is is blind. It's really blind. And I think blindness is actually one of the big problems that we sort of see right now. We have this smoke screen or these curtains in front of our face right now. And we think that uh, we can just carry on on this path. And it's just not the case. You know, we need to start to understand that drastic changes and it needs to be in order here. We Well, now... for our very survival as a species. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we uh, if we look at soil loss as a whole... Well, well, let's 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 let's. Uh, I'm going to take you away from a tangent because uh, we're coming at, up to the uh, I think the hour mark. Um, we are at 40 minutes in here, and uh, I would like to uh, close us off at an hour. So let's continue looking at some uh, proactive things that uh, people in the audience, listeners, can do to actually uh, promote more biodiversity. And you mentioned certainly the government's role, and the public has a huge role in this as well as in advocating for the rights of ecosystems and promoting that to their governments that these are uh, sustained and protected. Costa Rica is actually a great example of the, a country with the highest amount of parkland and uh, reserved protected areas. There's no reason why Canada shouldn't be that way. And for listeners, it's worth, worth noting that uh, in North America, roughly 3 to 5% of old growth on human you know affected forests actually remain so we need to i think create uh, nature belts that uh, are are necessary for migratory animals and uh, keeping species various species intact um purifying our water etc i want to talk about mycorrhizal fungi and its role in the forest and more importantly um ways that it can be promoted in restoration of uh, forest ecosystems and for the listeners um, who aren't familiar with mycorrhizal fungi it's incredibly fascinating it's the largest organism is actually a mycorrhizal fungi uh, network that uh, is upwards of 2200 acres and mycorrhizal fungi is one cell wall thick and is this complete size. It's completely remarkable. And it has the capacity to uh, transmit uh, minerals from an area of high concentration to low concentration. So it's created a relationship with plants, with, with the root structure of uh, forests, and is uh, actually exchanging nutrients to uh, entire plant species in exchange for glucose basically in exchange for carbohydrate or uh, the byproducts of uh, plants respiration now this is something also too at the before we I, I have you answer that question on actually restoring mycorrhizal systems another thing for the listeners on, on this amazing fungi network which really is only just starting to be understood is that uh, it has intelligence this is actually a organism that uh, <laughs> one cell wall thick yet yet is transmitting uh, neurotransmitters serotonin is a good example of that and is almost like the nervous system and the circulatory system for entire plant ecosystems operating within the soil structure and in isolation in studying in laboratory uh, examples scientists have determined that mycorrhizal fungi does have an intelligence that 
is quite remarkable. You can put mycorrhizal fungi into a maze with a food source at the end of a maze, and it will, you know, seek out this food source. It'll find the root necessary to find the food and consume it. And if you put that exact same mycorrhizal fungi back into the same maze with a new piece of food, it will take the path of least resistance. It has memory. Isn't that remarkable? It shatters our, you know, worldview of what uh, what intelligence is within uh, species. And, uh, you know, this is like, for the listener, fungi is the same family that mushrooms are in and molds. Really, it's really eye-opening to the fact of, you know, how little we potentially know about due process in nature and its potential and really how smart it is. So, so yeah, the specific question that I want to ask is... Uh, how, do, how can we go about within forest systems to uh, replenish and promote mycorrhizal fungi so that the plants that are growing in a, in, in a budding or developing forest or seedlings, for example, in uh, plantations of uh, forestry, how do we replenish that so that these plants and various organisms can, can uptake more nutrients? Fantastic question. So I just want to give one quick thing about... Um these, uh, these fungal associations that are in the ground. So in a, in a garden uh, space, we see um, a, either a bacterial or a fungal domination in the soil. So in a garden, it's about an 80-20, and in a forest, it's about 75-25. And so the, that will be the biology that is dominating um, And I want to note 75-25, 75% in a forest being the fungal associations, Sorry, yes, 25% being the bacterial yes, associations. Yeah. Whereas in, um, in a garden, vegetables, yeah. it would be the opposite? Essentially the opposite, Some, okay. somewhere in that. It, it, basically, you know, um, a safe rough guess is about 75% of a forest is a fungal-dominated system, whereas a garden is 75% bacterial-dominated. Which, you know, really brings up a lot of uh, interesting questions. I, I would try not to get too far into it, but there are potentially, we don't know, we can't ad- identify them all, 50 million genus of bacteria and 50 million genus of fun- fungi. So... Within soil? With, within, well, within our, our known world right now. Okay. That's, so that's how many different species... Of each bacteria and fungi, and, that the, and, exist. and these various species hold different uh, functions and different purposes. Yeah, and, uh, that's only they, beginning to be scratched yes. with human health and with uh, you know even obesity. But that's a whole other topic. Yeah. So continuing so, with the mycorrhizal. Fungi. Yeah. So yeah. so with that, we need to take a look at what their food source is. So what are they eating? And that is, they are they love carbon. They're, they're carbon lovers. They want a carbon dominated system. So. Within that, you know, if if we're going to interact, and car- carbon being the uh, the main element in most molecules, essentially organic molecules yeah. are a carbon backbone. So, yeah, yeah. So, so any uh, biological life form, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So um, you know, interacting with these in a way, uh, you know, let, let's just take with the the root of logging as you know, like I mentioned before, removing the bark off of these trees. Uh, if we are going to be taking trees out of the forest, um, you know, removing the bark beforehand and not burning. There's a lot of burning that goes on in, in uh, the forestry industry. Uh, there, 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 there's enough. There's enough burning of uh, of trees that uh, if if that wood had been used for timber or even for um, firewood in people's homes it there's enough wood that it could stretch 
the entire length of Canada from Vancouver to Newfoundland, something like 15 times. It was something absurd, wow. absolutely beyond comprehension, <laughs> the amount of uh, carbon mass in these uh, trees that are just being sent into the atmosphere. Yeah, and this all just gets burnt off, uh, which negatively interacts with the, you know, the, the soil situations that are currently present after a logging situation. So, uh, you know, trying to keep these, these logs, these trees, and any of the off cuts or the undesirable woods that we uh, see in the forestry industry that, uh, you know, we leave those there. Uh, they, they hold a huge amount of value for uh, not only bank stabilization, but for food, that, that humus in the soil that the, the fungal associations can make and can help to continue the uh, prosperity of that. Now, there's um, a huge amount of work done by a gentleman named Paul Stamets. Oh, yeah, Mushrooms Could Save the World. Yeah. If the listeners, if you haven't heard of Paul Stamets, do your homework, research this man. Please, Remarkable. yeah, please go watch. There's a TED Talk uh, that he speaks at. Absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, but uh, to get into a bit more of the specifics of what he's doing uh, with remediation um, so and whatnot. Specifically with forests. Like, that's yeah. really where... where... Yeah, so um, what he's finding is that um, these networks, like Ray was saying, that they, they're so deep that... Uh, to interact with them right now isn't necessarily even the best idea what we can be doing. Um, specifically, instead of trying to inoculate uh, new space is harbor the the life, uh, sort of the living situations that we can. So that would be obviously growing more forest, having a larger scope of diversity within the forest itself. Um, She's uh, planting uh, the desirable species uh, within reach and access to us so that we don't have to interact deeper into the forest is, I think, another beneficial thing. But also um, not removing as much. Um, you know, within the West Coast here, we have a huge network of um, mushroom picking uh, right. that is quite... Uh, quite prosperous for certain uh, uh people and i mean it, the fun- fungi is a whole right so is- so it's definitely it's critical that we keep forests and economically speaking generate revenue and exports or what have you by harvesting wild medicinals and uh, foods that thrive in healthy functioning ecosystems yeah absolutely. instead of cutting them down absolutely so have yeah. that be an economic driver Sorry, yeah, that was what I was trying to get okay. to. Okay, right, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's amazing. And, um, you know, really, that, that's what we have to do, I, unfortunately, is we, to uh, really get out to, to the, uh, the masses and uh, most people is to really put an economic uh, component, uh, you know, twist attached to this. And I think that's something, you know, it, it's about harmonizing social factors economic factors and ecological factors in a way that is that's really sustainable design and development and um finding a way of of having all of those balanced synergistically together to the benefit of all species absolutely you know and and it's not something that's an overnight process you know we need to be creative and we need to come up with creative solutions for this but absolutely people need to start to understand that we need start making changes yesterday that are large scale that's yeah. that's the thing is we are at a there's so much talk of this tipping point that you know if we don't get to this harmonization space we just don't know what's going to happen i'm the type of person that likes to err on the side of caution because i like living and i like nature and i like you know a healthy abundance of all the things that we you know desire in life and that those are all possible they're all possible with harmonizing with nature right 
All right. Well, with 10 minutes left for the audience listening, what are what are some other ways that uh, within forests specifically that uh, we can begin to harmonize? One that I, I really want to talk about too is, is uh, the paradigm of even cutting down trees in the first place and that, um, you know, foresters will say that uh, a tree should be cut down within an 80 to 100 year cycle. In actual fact, uh, many of these tree species can uh, live upwards of thousands of years. Um, if we were to do selective selective logging, what are some other things within in the forest itself that we could uh, create if the forest was to be left intact that would uh, be beneficial for its preservation? Uh- I don't know that there necessarily are many things that we could be doing to specifically aid the forest itself. Once, you know, a forest is essentially like the pinnacle of nature. That's where it wants to be. That's where it's trying to get. That is... It has has the most amount of functional groups, something over 30 different functional groups. And functional groups being, um, each functional group is thousands of species and different kingdoms all working together to perform a similar function. And an an example would be like a... Um, um, fungi that's uh, or um, a fungi decomposers would be an example mm-hmm. right. um, sort of my perspective on you know really protecting forests now is creating your own forest but creating food forests I think that's really the, the big step forward is if we want to start to protect and preserve nature uh, the space in which we interact with um, needs to be rehabilitated in a way that can feed us, you know, and I'm not saying that we should be cutting down forest, plant food forest by any means, but forest that is being cut down, not only for ourselves, because, you know, we are exceedingly invasive into the natural process. And as we do that, there are certain uh, species that we can plant to help grow food for ourselves and, and for some of the, the natural species that are out there. Uh, but yeah, definitely creating those buffer zones where we do have, uh, an interaction um, threshold where we are okay. We're going to interact with na- uh, with um, the forest in some way, shape, or form. But let's let's put a buffer on the edge of that where we want to spend the majority of our time. So we have uh, you know a, a plethora of fruit trees growing in that, and within that, yeah, creating essentially what are called uh, a system of polycultural orchards, which is essentially a food forest where. We get to interact on the outskirts of a forest that is still a forest, but it's uh, an intentionally planted one where we have a diversity of species that we can eat, uh, that produce food in a healthy abundance. Uh, that's some of the probably the most nutrient dense food out there because that's a forest is the healthiest system in nature. That is the forest that we get to, you know, if we can take food out of a system like that, well, we can mimic what nature does. And if we can, in the process, keep ourselves out of the uh, existing forests and into our own food forests. So, and granted, this is difficult for people living in the cities. But if we have spaces, especially like large park spaces that are food forests, then we would be able to interact with within those spaces and leave nature alone and and really be able to just allow it to do its thing. Well, that, that's ex- absolutely exciting. And on that note, I think we'll leave it there and touch on food forests at a later podcast. We'll go into more depth as to what a food forest is, the different uh, structures within a food forest, different layers, different species that are interrelating together, and how the audience, listeners, can go about creating a food forest or learning more about such a creation. With that said, here we come to the hour mark, and 
I really appreciate your time and uh, sharing with the audience all the knowledge you have about uh, forests and uh, soil ecology and uh, you know the tipping point that we are at. I'm very excited to note that there are a lot of possibilities and new exciting opportunities that are, are upon us and ways that we can begin to influence uh, nature in a positive manner or at least leave it completely alone. So on that uh, note, thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Ray. Obviously, we're going to be doing this again. I would just like to say uh, sometimes uh, I get a little caught up on the uh, the problems that are in front of us. But uh, I really do believe that uh, with intent interaction within nature that we really can turn this all around and in a very quick fashion. I think that all of the answers for uh, food and the abundance of healthy food uh, all come from mimicking nature and uh, the and, process that goes along with how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And the implications of that to uh, public health and uh, well-being mentally, emotionally and spiritually as well is... is beyond comprehension so wow all right that's 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 a savior to many of the world's problems absolutely nature thanks for listening bye everyone